Well, we are going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, so if you want to turn uh, there with me, we're going to hop into the second chapter. And I'm just going to uh, preface this, the book of Ecclesiastes is going to be a total downer this morning, um, as we have all prepared our New Year's resolutions. Uh, Maybe you've set some goals for yourself this year. Maybe you want to finally lose that weight. Maybe you want to finally get some money in the bank. Maybe you want to work harder, read more. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at one small section of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to see a man who did everything for us. He already did everything for us, and he found that really, in the end, uh, it just wasn't that great. just wasn't that great. This author, this preacher in Ecclesiastes, he found that, and what we're going to see this morning is that that life is frustrating. Because the good life is empty. Life is frustrating because the good life is empty. And let me introduce you here to one of the most uh, dramatic, in his feels, author, writer in all of Scripture. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 4 says this. This is the, the words of the preacher. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And here, uh, right off the bat, we are introduced to two characters. And you can probably pick out the first one here, right here in verse 1. It is the preacher. It's given to us as the preacher. Now, the preacher talks uh, most in the book of Ecclesiastes. But if you read a little bit closer, there is someone else here lurking in the background. In verse 1, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And here we have the second character that's presented to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is the author. So we have the preacher who speaks the most in Ecclesiastes, and we have the author. And the author is the person who has collected all of the teachings and the sayings of the preacher, and he is presenting it to us. Uh, The author has this little moment right here at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, and then he has a moment at the very end where he summarizes the whole book for us. Let's look at these two people just really quickly so we get to know who we are dealing with. Let's, let's start with the preacher. Um, and for whatever reason, for whatever reason, when I think of the preacher in Ecclesiastes, the person that comes to mind is the food critic from Ratatouille. Does, does everybody, anybody seen that movie? Have we seen this movie? This is the person that comes to mind when I think of the preacher, like tall, sharp-tongued, cynical, jaded, doesn't like bad food, you know. This is the person that comes to mind for me, and, and probably the best word to describe the preacher is jaded, is cynical. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, he has gone through life. He's done it all. He's probably well into his later years. He has tried everything, so you don't have to. You could maybe bring to mind a family member that you were engaged with over the last couple weeks who just uh, is a know-it-all, right? 
or who's maybe just a little condescending when they talk to you and you're not really sure, you can't figure out why, or if they are, you can't ever nail them down. This is how the preacher is portrayed. So who is the second character? We have the author, right? The author is the person who is collecting these sayings and wisdom of the preacher. And, and we don't really know who the author is. Um, the preacher in this book, it could be King Solomon. That is one person that is put forward as uh, the writer of all of these sayings, the writer of all of this wisdom. It could be King Solomon. It might not be. Um, and we have no idea who the author is. It was just probably a wisdom teacher in Israel who has collected all of these sayings and is presenting what he has found to us. And so what we have here is the preacher. And he's going to share the wisdom of his life with us. And, and he has a favorite word. Maybe you saw it here in the first four verses. He uses this word to describe everything. Um, this year, uh, we realized that Laurel had a, my daughter, Laurel, she's 16 months old. She had a favorite word that she learned um, late summer, early fall. Um, and it was Hot. And she would always say it like this, hot. And everything was hot, okay? Fire, hot. Stove, hot. Ice cubes, hot. Everything, everything is hot. And this is exactly what the preacher has, right? Everything is, your translation of scripture might have vanity, it might have meaningless, it might have vapor, but the, all of these words are trying to convey, what the preacher is trying to convey through this is the, is the Hebrew term hevel. This is the word that is, dis, that is used in Ecclesiastes. It is hevel. And so what's the preacher trying to get at when he uses this word hevel? The word is trying to capture this feeling of chasing after the wind or trying to catch smoke. You can run, and you can run, and you can run as much as you want to, but you are never going to catch the wind, right? You can grasp, and you can reach as hard and as much as you want to, but you are never going to catch smoke. It's trying to get at this feeling of, of anticlimax that you might feel when you finally get something that you thought you've always wanted, and it just doesn't turn out to be as great as you thought it would be. It's trying to get at this feeling in your stomach when you look at your life and you think you should be farther along than you actually are. This is what Hevel is trying to get at. And really what we're seeing here with this term is the preacher is an existential crisis unfolding before our eyes. And here is the wisdom of the preacher. He is having an existential crisis for you. So that when it's your turn, you can be prepared, okay? I'm not saying he's having the existential crisis for you, so you will never have to have one. I'm saying he's coming to it and looking at all of the stuff that life has to offer. And he is saying, I'm preparing you for it. The preacher has uh, a crisis about a lot of things. But I want to I look at one passage specifically. This is the passage we're going to look at this morning, Ecclesiastes 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Um, but I'm going to summarize chapter 1 just really quickly before we hop into it. In chapter 1, the preacher looks at the hevel of work because time never stops. Okay, this is the first thing that he jumps into. He says, man, time never stops. A generation comes, a generation goes, so my work means nothing. Like right off the bat, he gets into some pretty heavy topics. 
Time never stops, so my work is meaningless. He also says that there are no new things to be done. Everything new has been done. Why should I even try? He even says that pursuing wisdom is meaningless too. This is all that he gets to in chapter 1. And we see, like, this guy is struggling, right? This guy is going through it. And so what does he turn to next? I'm going to read this section of Scripture, Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 8. You can follow along with me. It's also going to be on the screen up here. So this is the preacher. He is turning to uh, something new to try in chapter 2. So says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. This is what the preacher turns to next in his search for fulfillment, in his search for happiness, in his search for meaning. And in these verses, we find four resolutions of the preacher. He has looked at his life. He says, I'm not happy with it. I'm going to resolve to do something different. And we have here four resolutions of the preacher. And here are the four, right up front. We're going to dig into these. The four are this, in this section. Partying, public acclaim, power and possessions, and then lastly, pleasure. These are the four things that the preacher dives into, resolves to do to change his life. So let's dig in. Let's dig into these. The first resolution the preacher makes is in verses 2 and 3. He says, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So the preacher's looking out at his life and he says, maybe I can find fulfillment in partying. Maybe I can find fulfillment in partying. This is the preacher's college phase, okay? This is the preacher's college phase. He wants to have a good time. He wants to find some friends that make him laugh. He wants to have the best time that he can with a bottle of whatever. And we get these really interesting statements in verse 3. Let's look at this. So he's looking here and he's searching to, it says, cheer his body. And he's doing that uh, through two things. One, with wine. He wants to cheer his body with wine. And then two, he says, I want to cheer my body by laying hold on folly. And then there's this descriptor of how he is cheering his body with wine. He says he is still doing it by being guided by wisdom. And this is, this is very confusing to me. So he is wisely pursuing alcohol, but he is doing it foolishly. 
This is, this is what he's saying. This is kind of what we get at here. And then we look at the next part of the verse. So that he might see what is good to do during the few days we have on earth. What's going on here? What's, what's the preacher struggling with? Well, commentators give two descriptions here. They give two explanations of what's happening in the preacher's life. Either putting weight on the wisdom statement or putting weight on the folly statement. So here, either the preacher is pursuing pleasure, trying to find fulfillment by being a connoisseur of wine, or, or he is foolishly getting drunk. These are the two options that we have here. Either he's a connoisseur of wine and he is pursuing fulfillment that way, or he is foolishly getting drunk at whatever turn he has. And I am, I'm not sure which one is correct, but it doesn't really matter because in the end, he wasn't satisfied anyway. But the preacher tries something that many of us have experienced or maybe seen people experience. It says he tried to lay hold on folly, right? Literally doing those things that we know are unwise, kicking the the consequences bucket down the road for future Scott to deal with, for future you to deal with. And all of us struggle with this at some point in our life. Some of us, like, we brush up against foolishness. Some of us try to get as close as we can. The preacher here said, forget all of that. I'm going to grab hold of foolishness, and I'm going to see where it gets me. And we find that it gets him nowhere. And over all of this experimenting in his life hangs this uh, existential dread that life is short. Right? The preacher looks at this and he says, you know, I'm looking at what's good for the children of man to do during the few days that they have in their life. And maybe you have felt this in your walk with Christ. Maybe you have felt like you are missing out on the good life. Maybe you feel like time is running out. I remember feeling like this when I came back um, from Christmas break, my freshman year of college. I went to a Christian university, and and a lot of my friends from uh, Valpo High, they went off to Purdue, they went off to IU. And I remember hanging out with them on Christmas break, and they were telling me all of the fun that they had. They were telling me all of the stuff that they drank, all of the people that they were with. And in that moment, I felt like I was missing out. Like I was missing out on an experience. Like I was missing out on a part of my life that the Lord was holding me from. But as I got older and as my friends uh, continued to walk down those paths, they found and I found that that didn't make them happy, right? That that didn't give them fulfillment. And the preacher finds this too. Partying wasn't going to do it. It was vanity. It is mad. He says, what use is it? And so instead of walking continually down that road, the preacher turns and he makes a different resolution. If he couldn't find happiness and fulfillment through partying, maybe he could find it through public acclaim. Let's look at the next two verses, verses 4 to 6. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. The preacher has moved on. He's grown up. 
He's moved on from finding purpose and comfort in alcohol, and he has moved to trying to find it in building and planting. Let's call this the preacher's career building phase. All right, this is his career building phase. He says, I'm going to do great things, and everybody's going to see me do it. I'm going to do great things, and all eyes are going to be on me. He wanted people to know and to see how great he was. And we notice here that these works were not for other people. He was still very self-focused. It says, I built for myself, right? I made myself gardens. These were not public buildings, or at least selfless generosity to the public was not the main goal in what he was doing here. His path might lead through public generosity, but in actuality, the destination was so that people would look at him for what he had done. And one interesting thing in this passage is that we find many similarities to the creation narrative here. The creation narrative in Genesis, right? We look back at Genesis uh, 1 and we see God doing great works. We see God making a garden. We see God planting in that garden fruit trees of all kinds. Here in Ecclesiastes, the preacher does great works. The preacher makes a garden. The preacher plants fruit trees of all kinds. And so you could read this section in a much more godless way. You could read this section that the preacher was playing at God, trying to make a paradise on earth so that everybody would look to him for their fulfillment and their sustenance. But we reach for public acclaim all the time, trying to build ourselves up, trying to create our own great works, making everyone turn their eyes to us. And this isn't just the uh, this isn't just the role of, of billionaires and people who can build great things. But interestingly, um, Andrew Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie was one of the most, uh, was one of the richest men who has ever lived. Uh, made a killing, making steel, and a ton of other things. It was estimated at his death that his net worth was somewhere between 300 and 400 billion dollars. Crazy money. And interestingly, these guys like Carnegie or Rockefeller, they got so good at making money uh, that it just wasn't cutting it anymore. Making money wasn't the goal anymore. They got bored with it. And so in the end of their life, they often turned to philanthropy. They said, we've made all of our money on the backs of all of these people. Let's give some of it back, right? Let's give some of it back. And there was this building in uh, Cedarville, Ohio, where I went to college, and it was called Carnegie Hall. This little itty-bitty town of Cedarville that was I don't know, maybe 2,000 people, had this beautiful building, Carnegie Hall. By the time that he died, Andrew Carnegie had built over 2,500 libraries and public buildings throughout the country, many of them with his name on them, right? Look at what I have done. Look at what I have built. Put my name on that building, so that people will see my greatness. But this isn't just a billionaire's problem, right? We even work like the preacher did, under the veil of generosity and, and empty virtue. We type on Facebook, trying to gain eyes to our own little kingdoms, trying to gain the attention of others. We post on Instagram, trying to build our own little brand that points back to ourselves. We have also worked to create a generation 
who desires to be in the public eye. A study by High Visibility shows, um, this is of Generation Z, which is the generation that was born between 1997 and somewhere around 2010. A study by High Visibility showed that over one in three Gen Z in the Midwest want to be a social media influencer. They want to be a social media influencer. 27% of Gen Z nationally plan to become a social media influencer as their next step after high school. 27%. Next step after high school. I'm going to be a social media influencer. Many of us today are trying to find meaning by grabbing the attention of others. But the preacher says that this too is meaningless. This too is hevel. This too is chasing after the wind, trying to grab smoke. You will never do it. And so he makes another resolution. If it's not partying, if it's not public acclaim, maybe, maybe it's power and possessions. This is the next resolution that the preacher makes. Verse 7 through the first part of 8 says this, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. So what the preacher turns to next, he looks for power over people and possessions. Let's call this the the preacher's C-suite phase. It's a C-suite phase. He has reached the top of the org chart here, right? And he's doing it through power and possessions. Let's look at the the slaves that he gathers first. It says he had men and women that served in his household. And it also says that he had slaves born in his house. What does this mean? Why would he point this out? Well, in Exodus 21, Moses lays out laws concerning Hebrew slaves. He says that if somebody purchases a Hebrew slave, then that man would serve his master for six years and then be freed in the seventh year. But if that, if that slave was alone when he entered into service and the master gave this slave a wife and they had a child during this time, then that child would stay with the master for the entirety of their life. So what is this saying? It's saying that the preacher had so many slaves and that the preacher had them for years and years and years. He had great possessions, slaves and authority over people, which I think speaks for itself, but he also says that he, it also says that he gathered silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. The preacher ruled over people, and he ruled over provinces in such a way that those provinces and people would have to pay him taxes, Right? This guy is at the height of his power. There is nobody greater than him in all of the land of Israel. He is at the top of the org chart. And many of us try to find purpose and fulfillment through power and possessions just like he did, right? If I can make more money, if I can buy more things, if I can climb the org chart, if I can be in charge of just a few more people, then I'm going to be happy, right? Then I'm going to find fulfillment in my life. And so we click and we cart and we claw and we climb up the org chart trying to find meaning 
and happiness. And retailers and online shopping sites have, have figured this out, right? There is probably nothing better uh, than shopping on Amazon, right? It's just a good feeling. Maybe, maybe shopping on Amazon with somebody else's money. That's probably better, right? Researchers have found that the brain releases dopamine, which is the feel-good chemicals in the brain, when we shop online. Because more than just purchasing the item, which releases dopamine, there's also dopamine released when we have to wait and anticipate something that we have already purchased, right? And so you click on Amazon, and for the next few days, you get these little dopamine hits when you're like, oh yeah, I have a, I have a present coming. Like that little brown box is going to show up on my porch in just a few days. And over and over again, we try to find happiness and fulfillment in the things that we gather to ourselves. Or we look for it as we climb the org chart, right? If I can have power, authority over just a few more people, then I will be more satisfied. And, and one, financial officer, uh, one financial author who got fed up uh, running the hamster wheel of the nine to five said that he realized, as he looked at climbing the org, org chart, he said he realized, quote, the best possible outcome in my life, should I continue with my current career, is that I end up in my boss's office one day, or one very much like it, doing work very much like him, nine to five, every day of the week. And this was like a total realization for him, right? I could keep climbing this org chart and I can sit in a different office doing things that I don't like for a little bit more money. And he was done with it. He and the preacher had something very much in common, that power and possession wasn't going to cut it. And so the preacher turns to one last resolution, right? He says, all right, my college phase didn't do it. Partying wasn't it. Public acclaim, my career building phase, it didn't fill me up. And the C-suite, power and possessions did not make me happy. And so he turns to the last and maybe the most attractive of his resolutions. And that's pleasure. Pleasure. The preacher resolves to do anything and everything to find pleasure and comfort. We see this in the second half of verse 8. He said, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And the idea of this passage is that the preacher did not let any form of pleasure escape him. Right? He, he sated himself, he lulled himself with entertainment and sex. If, if the preacher is Solomon, which it might be, or someone taking on the persona of King Solomon, we know from uh, 1 Kings that Solomon was well known for his many, many wives. And it's also well known that this sexual promiscuity led to his downfall. The preacher tried so many other ways to find fulfillment and he failed. And so he was left with pursuing comfort. Pursuing comfort. And we know something about this today. Uh, did you know that the average Netflix user watches 3.2 hours of Netflix every day? 3.2 hours of Netflix every day, the average Netflix user. That is 203 million hours of Netflix watched every single day. Every single day. Just on Netflix, right? 
Today, we have so much more access to comfort and to pleasure and to entertainment, right? You have in your pocket right now more music and entertainment and sex at your fingertips than the preacher had his entire life. His entire life. He would look around at our culture today and and he probably would be shocked at the amount that was available to us, but he would not be surprised at the outcome it has brought. Because, let's be honest, I would rather be alive today, I'd rather be an average Joe Schmo today than a king in Jerusalem 2,500 years ago. Right? I would rather be average today than a king in Europe 100 years ago. We have food at our fingertips. I can get it delivered to my door. Uh, We have entertainment, all the entertainment that we could ever want. We have homes with heating and air conditioning. I can say, hey Google, hey Siri, it's like a personal little servant for me. We have music in our pockets. But despite all of this comfort, depression and anxiety levels are higher today than they have ever been. And so we and the preacher are left empty again. This is what he says in verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. What he's saying is, hey, I went and did and that was it. And I found no pleasure in it. All of this is chasing after the wind, trying to grab smoke. And the rest of Ecclesiastes is no different. The preacher here has 12 chapters of existential crises after existential crises. He goes from one thing to the next thing to find pleasure and fulfillment and satisfaction, and he's frustrated continually by the big problems in life, like time never stopping, right? Like death coming for everyone. And at the end of all of this, the preacher and the author, they have one last thing to tell us. So I'm going to jump to the very end of this book, Ecclesiastes 12. The preacher summarizes his whole book in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 1 and 2. He says this, After all these things that he tried, this is his recommendation. Remember also your creator in the days days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Preacher summarizes his experience and he wants us to learn from them. And this is what he tells us. He says, hey, I tried it all and what I found is that you should follow the Lord sooner rather than later. The preacher's saying, hey, I went through all of this so you don't have to, right? Learn from my mistakes. Learn from my wisdom. Learn from my experience. And this is the preacher's summary of Ecclesiastes. But we also have The author, do you remember the author who we were introduced to in the very first verse? The author summarizes for us. I'm going to do his summary out of verses 13 and 14. He says this, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the author's summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, Fear God. And obey him, because you will be judged. And these two summaries give us a picture of the human experience, right? They're telling us, hey, remember where you came from. You came from your creator. Remember where you're going. 
Nobody makes it out of this life alive. And remember who you will stand before at the end of all things. And so what can we pull from this going into 2022? What can we pull from this as we make New Year's resolutions even here and now? We see that the preacher was continually frustrated at all the world had to offer. And we find ourselves uh, in the same spot as well. I chase after this thing and it leaves me empty, right? I chase after that thing and it doesn't fulfill me like I thought it would. This whole frustrating experience gives us a little picture into the problem that we face. And I think C.S. Lewis said it best. He noted this problem. He realized this problem in his own life. And this is what he had to say about it. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The most probable explanation is that we were made for a different world. If you have been living a frustrating life because the good life is empty and you just can't find something that's going to fulfill, this is God reminding you that you weren't made for this world or to worship what it has to offer. We were made for a different world. We remember that as we make our New Year's resolutions this year. Another thing the preacher finds on his frustrating journey is that God made creation for us to enjoy, right? He made creation for us to enjoy from food to work, from relationships to study and wisdom. God made this world creatively and he made it purposefully for us to enjoy. And so we should. We should enjoy it, right? We serve a creative God who gave us good things. So we are called to enjoy the little things in life. This is something that the preacher finds over and over again as he uh, pursues this and it leaves him empty. All that he can find is say, I'm just going to enjoy it while I can, right? I'm not going to try to find fulfillment or, or ultimate purpose in it, but I'm going to enjoy it because it's here right now. And I think this is an important reminder for us in our busy schedules today, right? We bounce from one thing to the next thing so fast, trying to get the next hit of dopamine that we never really slow down to enjoy a conversation with a friend, to enjoy a walk outside, to enjoy the the work that we are doing that's right before us. God wants us to enjoy life, and he wants us to enjoy the creation that he has made. So an encouragement for us today is to, to slow down and to enjoy what he has given you. And last, the preacher and the author both They discover that doing things out of their proper order causes frustration. The preacher and the author learn that doing something and finding purpose and fulfillment and ultimate satisfaction in something are two different things. Two different things. Finding purpose in the little things will create frustration in our lives, right? When we search for happiness or ultimate satisfaction in work or pleasure, we will be frustrated because they were not made to give us purpose. Instead, what we need to do as we work on creating New Year's resolutions, right? Instead, what we need to do is start in chapter 12. We need to start by fearing God and obeying his commandments and enjoying the life that God has created for us. Finding purpose in the little things is kind of like trying to build a pyramid upside down, right? The tip was never made to hold the weight of the hole. The tip was never made 
to bear the weight of the whole. Instead, what we need to do is start with the foundation of fearing God and obeying him. And the preacher and the author says, hey, preferably do this while you are young and you build on top of that. Life can be frustrating when we work backwards. And so as you make your New Year's resolutions, which I totally encourage you to do, remember your first priority this year is to fear God and to keep his commandments. Because your resolutions will not bring you ultimate happiness because you are not made for this world, right? But this world was created for us to enjoy, and so I encourage you to go and enjoy it this year, fearing God and keeping his commandments.